going to base my remarks this morning on John chapter 6. And if you'll bear with me, I'd like to, I'd like to help us step away from the prosperity and comfort of our daily lives mentally and spend some time this morning walking with Jesus and his disciples in our mind's eye, looking at the text of John 6 for inspiration. And it's a departure for me to do this, so I hope you'll bear with me. I'd like to paint a graphic picture, as it were, of the way we might have felt. So there'll be some conjecture to this exhortation, but I hope that we'll connect with their thoughts and feelings emotionally, not just intellectually, and then remember Jesus at the end of that. So, in your mind's eye then, imagine everything that you are at the moment vanishing away. So, we're no longer in this hall with a roof covering us. There are no longer walls, no floor. We're not on chairs. We are standing with Jesus in the Holy Land. We have no protection from the elements. There's no privacy or protection from the judgment of onlookers. We have no quiet time away from the sneering privilege of those who want to hang on to their power. We have no cars, there are no ovens with food waiting for us at home. We have left family behind. There's no convenient storage of optional items. We are only carrying with us what we need. We see only open spaces. We're not sure what we'll we'll do day by day. That was the reality for the followers of Jesus, the disciples. So now we are here together, waiting as we watch Jesus, slightly ahead of us now in John 6. As we look behind, we see a gaggle of disheveled, diseased, hopeful people, the poorest and weakest of this area. A huge crowd, actually. Uh, shuffling, as it were, towards us up, up the hill, struggling as they come. And it's odd because as we look at Jesus walking ahead, we each have free will to walk away. Why are we here? We have opinions of our own, we had lives of our own. But somehow we're in a state of willing submission and obedience to this man. Our lives have been in limbo ever since we called out to him. Yes, I will follow you. How often has we been asked just what it was about Jesus that meant that in that moment we felt it was the right thing to do to leave everything and follow him? There's just something undeniably right about sticking around. Everything works out okay. Life has meaning. His words his gentle attitude, his calm and loving authority. But when we try to explain to others why we've left everything for him, they look at us blankly. Well, I'm off home. Whatever makes you happy. I I envy your faith. See ya. And that's the reaction we all get today, by the way. So, as I said, today there's just another destitute crowd walking towards Jesus. And now Jesus, with purpose, walks higher up to the Golan Heights. Why is he walking uphill, we wonder? Won't some of those diseased and weak masses falter on the way? 
And we sit down with Jesus and wait. Jesus is looking down at the grass and seems to sigh. The anniversary of his coming death is looming. To us, though, it's just a Passover. A family time, perhaps, for us, where at last we'll be together with the few that we recognise, or just in the comfort of a room somewhere, even if not with family. He says, where can we buy bread so that all these people may eat? And what would we have answered, brothers and sisters? Jesus asks us specifically where we could buy bread. It's always the same with us, isn't it? Every time Jesus arranges our lives so that we see a need in others, it's never as easy as it could be. There's always an excuse ready on our lips and on our hearts, a way of escape. We can't help because. How will we manage? It's too much. We're told to love our neighbour as ourselves. We should be careful of that person. We don't know if we can trust them. We might not have enough to spare. It's just a drop in the ocean. What good can we do? We're only one person. All of these thoughts flood to us. I live in Brighton, so the thought that plagues me is, I can't help that person because they're addicted and there's nothing I can do, which of course is a lie. I could go home and donate money to a charity, but I don't. So I speak for myself as well as for the disciples here when they're asked this question. And they think in a human way, well, 200 silver coins worth of bread couldn't be enough for them. They'd only get a little anyway. I mean, we would spend the 200 silver coins if they got a proper meal, but they wouldn't even get that. So, of course, we shouldn't spend any money, which we don't have. We find ourselves saying similar words. Even though we, like them, knew all about his miracles. Jesus said in his last miracle, a few months previously, to the paralyzed man, do you want to get well? Then pick up your mat and walk. Well, we remember it happened. We all remember. So did the disciples. But it somehow means so little to us that we haven't really been changed by it. That man was disabled for 38 years. And we were there and we saw it. But it doesn't really change us as much as we would like. So that was the wrong answer. Well, well, we've been into this crowd and we've searched, as he asked us, to go and see what's there. And we came back with a boy with five loaves and two fishes. We wondered what a boy is doing with so much food. And maybe he was there to sell it to the crowd, perhaps. We can afford to buy this. But, of course, it wouldn't be any use. It's only a token gesture. So, even after a moment's reflection... And another answer to Jesus. We know somehow our hearts are still not quite getting it right. We're still sceptical that we have anything to do with helping. It's an impossible situation. What on earth can we do? And we try to stop ourselves from acting. But Jesus isn't asking for us to solve everything ourselves. This is, after all, an absolutely impossible situation. We have no money, and even if we did, we don't have the bread to buy. Jesus is asking us to take a leap into his world where token gestures are tokens of love and faith presented to God as offerings so that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. To go beyond the hopeless intellectual logic of the moment and act in faith, and that is to engage with God's power. Jesus asks us to make the people sit down in groups of 50 and 100 
and it's now that it hits us how many people there are. We're told there are 5,000 without counting women or children. So we can double it for the amount of women, perhaps, and then perhaps two children per couple. There may have quite well have been 20,000 people there. There are 20 people in this room. That's 1,000 meetings somehow coalesced in that area. Quite something. It's just a few of us. How can we expect to reach so many of them? Even the thought of asking them to sit down, I'm not sure if any of you have ever engaged in crowd control, it isn't easy. I used to help run running races, marathons, and looking at 500 people pressing in on you, you can barely communicate with any of them. They're herding cats is an understatement. So the disciples had to make 20,000 people sit down on the grass for no reason. Well, reaching people isn't easy. It's a gradual process. We start from where we are and we stretch for our goal. It's like walking where you lean forward and you're off balance and you start to fall. And so to stop yourself from falling, you take a step. So that's how we walk among this incredible crowd, finding our feet in the attempt, learning how to communicate. And as they find their bit of grass to sit on, we wait for a sign as well as them. We're as expectant as the crowd. We have questions just as they do. And let's be honest with ourselves. We're hungry and wondering where our next meal will come from as well. well. Jesus takes those loaves and fishes and standing on the hillside looks up to heaven and gives one of only a few public prayers, always of thanks. And every single person strains to hear. This act of creation involves everyone as individual participants. It wasn't something they witnessed, like a transformative event, where Jesus healed a paralyzed man. It was a, a sort of, they were in the middle of it. They couldn't even see more than a few groups away, over the heads of others. Now Jesus broke the bread, more bread appears from nothing, as it were, multiplying as he passes it out. Because there were so many people, If Jesus were to have performed the miracle himself, he would have been there for many hours, just breaking bread in half and half again. So we feel that others would have been able to see this multiplication process within their group. Perhaps the disciples also. It happened when the disciples broke this bread. So this was the most understated act of creation ever. A stupendous miracle witnessed by tens of thousands of people at a time when People were flowing down to Jerusalem for the Passover. This would have spread the news everywhere. Jesus was breaking bread that didn't exist before they ate it. They were eating fish that had never existed, that had never been, never seen a lake. We think back to the words of Jesus a few months earlier. I have a testimony greater than that of John for the deeds that the Father has assigned me to complete, the deeds I am now doing, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Surely Jesus' time has now come to be known. From the 2 Corinthians 5, we read the plan behind these miracles that Jesus performed. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. 
And this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The old has gone. The things that count, the new things, are unseen and eternal, not merely physical and logical, not paid for by money. Even when we don't have enough, we can still give exactly the right amount. If only we'd answered Jesus' question, where can we buy bread? Where can you buy bread so these people may eat? With the words of David's prayer to God when he was collecting for the temple. He writes, Who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, as our brother said in his prayer. We have given you only what comes from your hand. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for, building you a temple for your holy name, comes from your hand. And all of it belongs to you. And now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. In those moments where we're asked to give and we don't think we can, those are the moments where we can be loyal to God with those token gestures. Every time we try to argue with that still, small voice of our godly conscience, telling it that we can't do something, we're arguing directly with God's will in our lives. But he shows us patience. And it often takes us years to understand while he works with us. Eventually we learn to listen and pay attention and give him our will. As we just read, he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Not just, of course, to others, but to ourselves. In this, the meaning of the feeding of the more than 20,000, to give it its proper name, um, you know, we received the ministry freely, that we ourselves were called, we were bought, we were shown the fullness of the love of deity in Jesus. And now, if we're able to commit to him, we both have the responsibility of sharing and the ability to share. Everything bad we do by our own will is forgiven if we repent. And every good thing we become is because of the living and active spirit. It's hard to see what's so compelling about logic and argument that we use it so readily to fight against the will of God. And we have the feeling of the more than 20,000 as an example. But, and again speaking personally for a moment, I would find it hard to stand up in a packed train and make an announcement about the Bible class. I would find it hard to preach on a street corner unless perhaps I had a friend with me. There's an intellectual understanding and a commitment and a complete belief um, that Jesus is the life, but there's got to be more than that. There has to be an emotion that causes us to begin to reach out and allow Christ to work through us, to reconcile God to them. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over, and of course the fish as well. So we're walking around now, gathering up all that's scattered here and there. The crowd has had more than enough. 
and they've turned away from their food. And we're searching for scraps and find them everywhere. Remember Jesus searching for people in hedgerows. So these, these two fish, the Gentiles and the Jews, you know, we've got all the metaphors there. And we receive 12 basketfuls, exactly enough for the workers. And this represents the fullness of the sheer joy of the kingdom, overflowing with grateful masses from the poorest and weakest in society. So listen now to the crowd as it begins to understand. As the sea of excited, chattering voices grow louder, they ask, how can this have happened? We all have eaten. They get up and jostle to count the number of people for themselves. Tens of thousands of pairs of eyes have seen this. And the recognition begins to dawn on them and they turn to Jesus. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. This is the kingdom moment in miniature. Jesus will be king, recognised as such, installed by God in Zion. His time will come for the downhearted to burst their bands of slavery. This homeless, despised and rejected man Jesus will now be openly acknowledged as the head of the corner of this perfectly constructed house. But it isn't the time yet. And instead of seizing power like some kind of revolutionary zealot, which people in the world, atheists, paint him as, he melts away into solitude. Jesus, having already been put to the test in the wilderness, he overcomes the urge to accept or take power once more. Even though he sees these people, in his own words, as a flock lost, needing a shepherd. So even the compassion for them doesn't dictate that he step in. All we hear today, actually, as an aside, is, is how compassionate it is that we, that we accept socialism, isn't it? And redistribute everyone's stuff. So compassionate. We have seen that we have an absolute duty to reach out because we are Christ's ambassadors. And we have been given the power and authority to make a difference in people's lives and God is bringing those people to us as opportunities. Perhaps we realise, though, that we're not as faithful as we can be and we feel insecure about ourselves. Perhaps we know how often we fail to immediately submit to God's will in all these opportunities. But there is a positive side to this. Having experienced this Jesus, together with him, healing the mute, the lame, the deaf and the dumb, you know, the, the, those with no sight now see those who could, couldn't speak speaking and they, the, the deaf are hearing the speech. And it, I mean, it's just unfathomably beautiful. Thousands of them walking among this vast crowd as they ate their full. How is it possible that the disciples still don't have the faith to accept him or to realise what's going on, but instead later they forsook him and fled? How can then we ever expect to possess faith? We understand any of this, sitting here 2,000 years later. We've never seen a miracle as they have. We've never walked with him physically. No, only just imagine it. We remember later, don't we, when the disciples had forgotten to take bread with them. They went across the lake and Jesus asked them to be careful about a guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they, they wondered if it was because they hadn't brought any bread. And his his attitude. You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Don't you remember the 5,000 plus the others? 
and how many baskets, or the 4,000 and how much was left over. What will it take? And this is a, a question for us. We, we know everything that they knew, and we know it with their hindsight and their narration and their communication with us as later generations, as the authors of the, the Gospels wrote to us too. They were such terrible students. Brothers and sisters, surely so are we. Surely the disciples are greater than us. Not that we should compare. There is a difference between memory and faith, between intelligence and memory, which are passive knowledge, and faith, which is active wisdom. We are all forced to make choices, a choice between merely reading the word of God, understanding it, being fully aware of the types, the prophecies, the names, the geography, the miracles, the analysis, the theology, to appreciate the symmetries and the beauty of the teachings. We can all do that. And then the the other choice is actually living it, being humble, open-hearted, faithful, under pressure, kind and obedient, to live and suffer and undergo tribulation, persecution, hardship, when we don't really know the reason for it even. Jesus doesn't merely leave the lesson of the bread as an experience for the crowd, which was, as we know, so superficial. They were there, many of them, for their own temporal needs. He follows up this miracle with an uncompromising set of doctrines. Whatever selfishness might have drawn the crowds to him initially, Jesus was now using that sharp sword of the Spirit to divide this crowd into those who wanted an easy life, sitting on the grass with free food, from those who desperately wanted to know the truth and live it fully, responsibly. Note that Jesus isn't driving away those that are his. He specifically says he never does that. He's driving away those that are not his. I was told by a very capable pastor once, a spiritual man, a beautiful man, that he didn't preach doctrine in his church or the pews would be empty. He would rather have people sitting there, so he said, so he could speak to them and encourage them than have no one there. But that's not the case with Jesus. Out goes the challenge. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And the Jewish leaders began immediately to grumble. Sort of almost a cannibalistic message. It was much too much for them to cope with. How could this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus just doubles down on this difficult message without any compromise or seeming explanation. Verily, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. It's a challenging message for us too now even. It's not enough for us to be comfortable on the green grass with our intellectual beliefs, to know that we're right, to have confidence in discussions, to believe in, a, in an absolutely sure and certain future. We have to consume Jesus down to the very core of what it means 
We have to make him us. We have to grow through him. We have to use him as our food. When we sit down, when we stand up. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. We, we remember what Lyle read. You do not want to leave too, do you? So Simon Peter answered him, Well, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so this, dear brothers and sisters, disciples of the Lord Jesus, is the positive lesson for today. Jesus and you and I share one thing. There is only one choice for us. We have been called. So we should live up to our calling. Do the will of the Father. Do we have memories of all the miracles just Jesus did and the rest of Scripture and quote verse, chapter and verse? Yes. But are we always faithful? No. We are indeed slow to understand, often found wanting, double-minded, lacking in enthusiasm. We lack self-discipline. We hold too tightly to earthly things, traditions. We respect things we shouldn't respect and we don't respect things we should respect. Rather too much like the disciples sometimes, aren't we, as we struggle to grow. But as we sit here now in our prosperity and freedom, we haven't abandoned him. To whom else should we go? He is here with us now as well. He and his Father continue to work with each one of us with a love that is beyond our understanding, with incredible patience as we repeatedly fail and fall short. It is his perfection, his strength, his wisdom, his care, his righteousness that means we may receive mercy instead of judgment. We're hidden within Christ our rock lest we die. Even though we see dimly and walk with faltering steps and we can't quite reach our prize and our speech is unclear, he is healing each of us every day, subtly and gradually. And we are watching it. We watch in each other the change that he is, the creation, the new creation and the transformation that he's having in us, like that bread as it multiplied. It's hard to see sometimes, but it's there. He is the light of our lives and we shall live in him forever if we can truly eat his flesh and drink his blood.